You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zaro. Welcome back to Women at Work and today's show on improving women's lives through technological innovation. In our first segment, we talked with Ann Trumbor, Senior Director of Wharton Online, about the power of e-learning. In this half hour, we'll be talking with Ann May Chang, Chief Innovation Officer and Executive Director of the U.S. Global Development Lab at the U.S. Agency for International Development, otherwise known as USAID. And we're going to be talking about how we bring the promise of the digital revolution to the developing world. And the amazing role that innovation is playing at USAID to transform global development through science, technology, and innovation. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. If you have questions for Ann May or you'd like to talk about how you've seen innovation work, give us a call. Once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Six, six. So our guest in this half hour of the show, Anne May Chang, bridges two worlds. She brings over 20 years of high-level engineering and leadership experience in the tech sector to her work in international development. After her successes in Silicon Valley at places like Google, Apple, Intuit, and SGI, she served as chief innovation officer at the international NGO Mercy Corps and became the senior advisor for women and technology in the secretary's office of global women's issues in the U.S. Department of State. She became an important public voice on leveraging technology to improve the lives of women and girls in developing countries and developed the Alliance for Affordable Internet, a public-private partnership that aims to increase Internet access to the next billion people. I'm honored that Ann May is taking time from her current role at the U.S. Global Development Lab to join us here on Women at Work. So, Ann May, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, Ann May, in as I was preparing for the show, I was just floored by all of the amazing stories of the work that you're doing, the people that are involved. But one of the most amazing things, I think, is the U.S. Development Lab itself. Can you talk to us about how it works, who's in it, and what you're focusing on? Sure. The Global Development Lab is the newest bureau at USAID, and we were set up um, just a little over two years ago to really focus on being an innovation hub for the agency where we could bring in and test new ideas that could be proved to be transformative for global development and then work with our missions and bureaus to really look at how we can apply those across our programming. So the team that you have there, where do they come from? Who makes up your team? We have a very diverse team, which I'm very proud of. Um, Our team consists of anything from rocket scientists to software engineers to um, bureaucrats who are career civil service and help us know how to navigate the bureaucracy, foreign service officers (laughs) who come in from the field and have been working um, out in the field and have lots of experience understanding what the challenges are in the countries that we're working in. So that's one of the things I'm particularly interested in. Um, In a way, it's almost obvious to me, even though I shouldn't take it for granted, that you're bringing this prowess in innovation and evidence-based decision-making from Silicon Valley with all the scientists that you're working with. It seems to me like sometimes the harder thing is figuring out how to understand the people whose needs you're trying to meet. Um, And you have really talented, capable people at your disposal. How does that actually happen at the team level? Well, so we work, um, USAID, I should just clarify for the audience, works in developing countries. So our aim is to really, um, at the top level, end extreme poverty in some of the poorest countries in the world. And so we have 
staff in missions um, in about 80 countries around the world who work day in and day out with those communities and really understand the challenges as well as with our implementing partners in those countries. And so they are our eyes and ears of really understanding the local challenges, the local problems, um, and the solutions that will work best. And so the Global Development Lab works in partnership with our missions to really look at what are the problems that they are seeing on the ground, what are the challenges they're facing, and we, what we bring is the modern tools and approaches and partners that can be helpful in solving those challenges. It's really incredible. As you described your team and you used the word diversity, it was exciting to hear because we often talk about diversity, particularly here on Women at Work, as a gender issue or a race, racial issue. Um, but you're also talking about a diversity of ideas and expertise that are making this team that can really solve problems in a new way. Absolutely. And it's not only our team at USAID, but one of our philosophies of the lab is that we really believe that the best solutions to problems often come from unexpected places and from bringing diverse perspectives together that, you know, each of us can see the elephant from a different angle, but it's only by bringing all of our perspectives together that we can actually um, come up with the best solution. So someone can, you know, be an engineer and understand the technology. Another person can actually understand some of the challenges on the ground with the particular communities that we're working with. Another could be more of a social scientist. And it's by bringing all of these different perspectives together that we come up with solutions that really work and leverage both uh, you know, the newest technologies and the most promising technologies, but also apply them in ways that are appropriate for the context. Right, because often these technologies are being applied, applied in environments that are so wholly different from the ones we live in, and the resources that we take for granted just aren't there. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we've worked on a lot is access to digital technologies in developing countries for two purposes. One is to make development programs more effective because we've seen how things like um, smartphones and the internet have transformed our lives here. We know that our development programs can be more productive and more effective by leveraging these technologies to be able to get better data about what's working and what's not working about our programs. In addition, though, we believe that these technologies have a potentially transformative effect, and we're already starting to see this, to the communities that use them directly. Um, you know, when people get access to phones, to, to be able to use um, new services like mobile money to transfer mm-hmm. money, to potentially save money, to get loans, um, to get access to the internet and get therefore get access to jobs and markets and education and information that they might have not have access to otherwise. That's incredibly transformative for people and communities. And it's a transformation that can happen in a matter of months or years in, in ways that used to take generations. Absolutely. I mean, I I certainly believe that the power of digital technologies is one of the pieces that can be transformative in our progress towards alleviating extreme poverty. And we know that there's a correlation between helping women and girls get educated and find work and alleviating extreme poverty. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's been um, many, many studies that have shown that by empowering women, by educating girls, that those are some of the most effective ways that we can go about 
about alleviating poverty. Um, I should also say that um, while we, I certainly believe that technology and digital technologies in particular can be transformative, it is also something that we have to pay particular attention to when it comes to gender because uh, technology is not all equal. Um, and in developing countries, what we found is that women are 23% less likely to have access to the internet. Um, and that number is actually even greater in certain regions. So for example, in Africa, there's almost twice as many men online as women. In South Asia, there's almost three times as many men online as women. And so if you think about the power that you get of you know, accessing markets and jobs and mm-hmm. information by, by accessing the internet, and if women don't have access to these types of technologies, we really risk leaving them further and further behind. Absolutely. In our first half hour, we were talking about online learning and that um, 75% of our learners from India are male. Yeah. And what that, that's not surprising given those statistics. Exactly. And um, I was watching one of your videos online from a conference you attended, and there was a phrase that came out that just stopped me because I thought it was so on the money. And it was that if we ignore gender, it exacerbates inequality. And it, it sort of tuned me into this fact that we have to think about gender in thinking about digital expansion and how to make it apply to everybody. Absolutely. Digital technologies really only magnify existing capacity. You know, they're a tool that is an amplifier. And so when women have less money, when they have less education, lower levels of literacy, um, lower levels of freedom, access to the Internet only magnifies those differences when it comes to men and women. And so unless we make a conscious effort to really bridge that divide, the default is that women may be left further behind as these technologies become more widely adopted. Without a doubt. The the extraordinary woman I'm talking with right now is Anne May Chang, and she's the Chief Innovation Officer and Executive Director of the U.S. Global Development Lab at USAID. Um, so, Anne May, would you talk to me a little bit more about some of the, the very specific components that are necessary to get women online in these developing nations and what the barriers are? Sure. There's a number of different challenges. Um, Some of the most significant ones is one is affordability, that in a lot of developing countries, uh, the price of accessing the Internet is actually very high, particularly relative to income compared to the United States. And so when you have something that's a premium product like that, women who often have lower incomes and, and less control over spending of their incomes, become um, it becomes a bigger barrier for them to access the Internet. So affordability is a big issue and one that we've certainly looked at. Um, there are other issues such as um, digital literacy. Um, off, you know, I, I sometimes joke that, you know, if you give, um, you know, if you give a boy a radio and a girl a radio, often the boy will tinker with the radio and try to figure out how it works, where the girl might just turn on the radio and enjoy the music, that boys tend to have this uh, tendency to like to tinker with things and figure them out, whereas I think women, because we have so many demands on us, tend to be a little bit more practical. And so oftentimes <laughs> we find that women don't have the same levels of digital literacy because they're too busy sort of taking care of the family and the children and their jobs, um, and so they're not, they don't have the time to tinker, and so it takes a little extra effort to give them the opportunity to learn and to take the time to learn so that they can take advantage of the technologies. We also find because a lot of these technologies and services are built by men, they're often designed for men and for the things mm. that men are interested in. And so there's less um, you know, available in terms of services and applications that, pe- that women find relevant to their lives. So to just unpack this a little bit, I think part of what 
um, right at first, it's do women know how to teach themselves how to use technology and both um, a possible disinclination to explore that way. And also, we know that part of why even here as we're thinking about sending girls into STEM fields, if they don't have role models, if it's men who are teaching boys how to make things, break things, take them apart, and the girls are not included in that, it's not, not going to be part of their tendency then to go and explore something. Absolutely. And and this is, you know, any generalization is a generalization, right? So it doesn't apply across the board. You certainly see women and men who fall outside those norms. But we see this in the United States also in terms of how computer science is taught. Mm-hmm. And what we found in some studies is that, again, boys tend to, you know, be interested in the tool for its own sake. You know, they like to tinker. And so that's a um, great distinction. When you think about the way that computer science has traditionally been taught, it's about algorithms and syntax and it's a very sort of dry approach, but it's one that works for many boys. We find that a lot of women or girls drop out of classes like that. But when you reorient the class and you really focus on problems that are relevant that the girls care about, then they get engaged because they want to solve the problem and the programming becomes just a tool to solve that problem. So I don't see that girls or women have any less aptitude for technology. It's just they have much more of a practical approach to if this is a tool that will help me solve the problem, I'll figure it out. But if I don't know that it's relevant, I'm not going to spend the time because I have too many other things to do. And then because these tools are designed by men and also without the kind of diversity that's clearly reflected on your team for a hyperbolic example, um, it's not something that girls are going to gravitate towards or see as relevant and useful. Absolutely. And one last barrier that I should also mention, which is quite important in certain um, communities, is that there are, are still strong cultural barriers in some communities against women accessing mobile phones or accessing the internet, that there's a cultural association of these types of communication with promiscuity so that um, fathers don't want their daughters to to access these technologies or husbands don't want their wives to do so. And you see even outright prohibitions in certain communities against women using these technologies. And so that's one other factor that really pushes against women's ability to access technology. When women get the technologies, though, what do they do with them? Are, is it? Do they immediately go to being promiscuous? Somehow, I'm guessing not. No, I, I, I think that's a, that's a stereotype, or that's a fear. It's you know? a fear, but it's I, driving access. Yeah, well, it, it's driving the prevention. The of prevention access of access. In, in access some yes. cases, yes, absolutely, because there is that fear of if you give women freedom, that they will become promiscuous. They, you know, they will no longer be in your control. And to some extent, that's the case. But I don't think it's generally because of promiscuity. You know, they have access to more information, are more empowered, and you know, hopefully, then will be feel more empowered to make their own decisions and to make choices that are right for themselves. And that can be threatening to men sometimes. And so it correlates with the fears about women literacy and ownership of money and access to driving and other freedoms that are part of being engaged in an economically viable role in society. Absolutely. I think they're all interconnected. When women do get access to this technology, because there have been successes in this regard, what do you see women doing with them? 
You know, I think it entirely depends. So, again, I think women are very practical in their use of technology. So in countries like Kenya, where mobile money has become very popular and, you know, the vast majority of adults use it, what we find is that there's a much higher percentage of women who are accessing mobile phones because it's something that enables them to um, live their lives. You know, if their husbands move to the city and are sending money back, they need a phone to be able to receive the mobile money transfer and be able to have funds for their family. And so you see a much higher percentage of women who are using mobile phones because it, because it becomes practical. There have been other things out there. Women use, you know, the the most common reason that women go come online in developing countries, I think, is to use Facebook. You know, really? The same, yeah, the same as anywhere <laughs> else. I mean, I think we often have this idea that, you know, in developing countries, the reason people will use phones is to access health information or agricultural information. But people are no different around the world than we are here in the United States. The first reason most people want to c- get online is for communication and entertainment. And, and for most people, that's Facebook these days. Except it also proves an axiom that um, I learned here in the Innovation Group, which is that we can design solutions that we think people need and want, as opposed to giving them the things that they that they tell us they need and want in the ways that they want to receive them. So it seems like if what we want to do is send out health information and give people tools to better their lives, we've got to start with where are they and how do they communicate and what do they need first? And it sounds like not to, not to diminish the importance of relationship and connection. Absolutely, because uh, that, that's really the, the human driver for all of us around the world, and I don't think people in developing countries are any different from us here in the United States. And also, I would imagine in a cultural environment where family and identity are so deeply intertwined, um, having messages come through a recognized network of people will probably help those messages be adopted. Absolutely. I mean, another example of this is that there have been a number of different solutions out there that are trying to give women information about pregnancy and birth Mm -hmm. um, and to give them better information about how to care for themselves and their newborn babies. Um, And the first thing people often go to is let's send a text message to everyone. Well, in some countries that works really well, but in other countries, you know, women may not have the same levels of literacy, so they can't read the text message or it's a little hard to navigate. And so what they found is actually by using voice recordings, it's actually been more effective in some countries because by using the voice recordings, you can actually have a a richer message come Mm -hmm. across with music, with expression, with different characters that becomes much more personal and accessible for women rather than just a black and white text message. And it also overrides the barrier of literacy and may be consumed through other media devices. Exactly. And so really understanding what you're up against and what you're trying to achieve um, is going to be critical in creating the innovations that are going to make a difference. Yeah, and I think your point was dead on earlier, which is that we really need to understand what it is people actually want, not what we imagine they should have. So, Anne May, I've got to ask you a couple of questions about you, because you're leading this extraordinary team. You're in this very unique position uh, at the intersection of the tech community and the developing world. How did you get here? How did you build the skills and the passion and the understanding that made you want to do this with your work? 
Well, I have to say, first of all, that it wasn't easy. Um, I spent most of my career in Silicon Valley in the tech sector. I studied as a software engineer, but I knew for most of my career that I wanted to spend the first half of my career in the private sector, but the second half of my career in the public or social sector. So you had this long-term plan early on. I did for probably 20 years. And you held on to it and just charged ahead and didn't get distracted. That alone is pretty remarkable. <laughs> I, th- I think I'm the only one that has had a 20-year plan <laughs> for my life, among the people I know anyway. I don't mean to distract you because I want to come back to wherever you were going next. But I think it's pretty remarkable that you entered into computer science engineering as a young woman with this 20-year plan about staying in the private sector. What shaped that? How did you know to do that? Well, I just have, you know, I enjoy technology. I had a blast at the various different places I was lucky to work in in Silicon Valley. But there was something that was missing for me. That it didn't feel as meaningful for me as I wanted. And I, I kept feeling this draw to, you know, do something more meaningful where I could really make an impact in improving the lives of people around the world and making the world a better place. And so, um, you know, I did that through various different kinds of volunteer work on the side while I was working in Silicon Valley. But ultimately, I knew that I wanted to make that the focus of of my life and, and my job. And so as you started, now, we can see that you got, you know, you were well-educated, you entered the field, you were a success at these tech giants. How did you make the transition into development work? It seems like it's a very different culture and often requires a very different set of skills. Yeah, it is a dramatically different world. And um, I only decided that I would focus on global development as I got close to that midpoint in my career and started thinking about what I wanted to focus on. And as I looked at the problems around the world that I really cared about, I really saw global poverty as at the root of many of them. And so I started trying to learn more about it. And the first step I took, actually, was while I was still at Google, in my last job, I was able to move into a role where I was leading a new team focused on emerging markets. Um, And so uh, through that, I was able to start getting a little bit more exposure to the developing world. And as part of that, I was invited along to join a State Department tech delegation to Liberia and Sierra Leone. It was actually the first women's tech delegation. And, you know, 20-some years into my career is the first time I met someone who worked for the federal government. Um, And so I sort of opened my eyes and seeing the work that the State Department was doing, some of the challenges that were happening in these countries and the promise of technology, and I got hooked. Um, And I learned through, you know, um, through that delegation about some of the different opportunities to join the State Department. And so a few months later, called them up and said, hey, you know, I'm interested in joining. What do I do? Um, And so I was able to go to the State Department through this program called the Franklin Fellowship Program. And I I ended up staying. It was a one-year program that you can renew for a year. So I ended up staying for two years. And I thought about it in a way as a custom master's in public policy Mm -hmm. that I knew that there was so much I had to learn about this space. I didn't know who the players were. I didn't know what the issues were. I didn't understand how this world worked because it's completely different than Silicon Valley. And so I spent two years at the State Department really learning from some of the best people um, who are doing this type of work. So I want to ask a very practical question. Then we'll come back to some of these bigger issues. Um, You've done what a lot of women dream about, which is to make a transition in mid-career to doing something that really matters to you. 
Um, when we talk about join, stay, succeed, and lead, part of our biggest ambition for women is that when you rise into a position where you can lead, that you're maximizing your impact. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you make this transition practically in your real life? I have to assume there was a big pay cut. And it's a change of how you lived. Um, was it something that you prepared for far in advance or you just jumped into? Well, um, it was something I had planned far in advance. Um, and, and it was a leap of faith as well. You know, I, I have to say that when I first left Google, I would never have imagined that I would be in the job that I am today, which I think of as my dream job in many ways. <laughs> like it was custom made for you. Yeah. And so um, it would be hard for me to imagine that it would it, that so quickly, relatively speaking, I would be able to be in this type of role where I feel like I can have the impact that I'm having. Um, but but it took a lot of work and it, and it took taking a step back during the time when I was at the State Department. You know, I was essentially an individual contributor as a fellow after having led large international teams for many years because I was in learning mode and I knew that um, there was a lot I didn't know and a lot that I had to understand better to be effective. So as you, you started to step into these bigger roles, what surprised you the most? What was your biggest learning experience in it? You know, there's so many things. Um, you know, it, culturally, especially working for government is so dramatically different than working for Silicon Valley. Um, the, there's some similarities, though. I mean, I think that both the places I've worked in Silicon Valley and in government, we have audacious dreams of changing the world. <laughs> um, so, so that's similar. But the cultures are dramatically different. Um, you know, for one thing, I you know spent most of my career being used to working in environments which were 90, 90, um, 85 or 90% men, um, whereas in at USAID, it's pretty close to 50-50. Um, and so culturally, that feels very different to work in an environment which is, you know, half women. Um, and it's a pleasant surprise, but also an adjustment for me. Um, I also came from environments which were very bottoms-up and meritocratic um, into an environment which is very hierarchical. I say that you know, one of the toughest things for me to adjust to in my job is that people take me way too seriously here. <laughs> there isn't the same kind of flatness and egalitarian um, culture that you would find in Silicon Valley, I gather. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, I have to say, Anne May... Th- One of the reasons why I have great faith in your audacious dreams of changing the world is because you actually are a bridge between the two best ofs, between the high-powered innovation that's coming from Silicon Valley and the deep commitment to making the world a better place that USAID is engaged in every day. So on behalf of everybody, thank you for the work that you're doing. And oh, my pleasure. I, you know, I still pinch myself every day that when I get up that I get to do this work. It really is an honor and a privilege. Well, it's been an honor and a privilege to have you with us on Women at Work. Thank you so much for making time to join us. My pleasure. So that was Anne May Chang, who's the Chief Innovation Officer and Executive Director of the U.S. Global Development Lab. Thank you so much to Anne May and Anne Trumbor. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dan Baker, and our new production assistant, Allie Freed. Our schedule of replays can be found, as always, on the SiriusXM website. That's www.siriusxm.com backslash businessradio. Please join us next week when Jenny Blake returns to the show to talk about her new book Pivot and to pick up where we left off when we last talked to her in New Orleans. Thanks for listening to Women at Work. I'm Laura Zarrow with Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 111. Thanks so much.